Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. First, we'll take a look at some of the day's news. Former Vice President Mike Pence has entered the presidential race, filing Federal Election Commission paperwork today. Well, the former vice president announced his run on Wednesday or is prepared to announce his run on Wednesday with a campaign event in Des Moines, Iowa, to be followed by a CNN town hall meeting in the evening. Sources familiar with the plans have said the Republican race is growing increasingly crowded. In late May, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis joined former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley, South Carolina Senator Tim Scott and Donald Trump, the frontrunner. Well, the move sets up a contest between the former president and his vice president. The relationship between the pair has become contentious. That's due to the events of January 6th, 2021. I don't need to review them. Well, the former vice president has was harshly or rather has harshly criticized his former boss for pursuing him, uh, pressuring him rather to cooperate with the scheme to overturn the results of the 2020 election by refusing to certify certain electoral votes. I had no right to overturn the election and his reckless words endangered my family and everyone at the Capitol that day. And I know that history will hold Donald Trump accountable, the former vice president said at a March event in Washington, D.C. Well, Pence is a former governor of Indiana, also served in the House of Representatives for more than a decade. He was chair of the House Republican Conference near the end of his tenure. The former vice president hasn't been afraid to take on other candidates, including DeSantis, who is second to Trump in the polls. Uh, Pence has criticized the Florida governor for his ongoing feud with Disney, explaining that DeSantis approach is beyond the scope of what I, as a conservative, a limited government Republican, would be prepared to do. Well, the move, it also comes shortly after the Department of Justice declined to file charges against the former vice president in a classified documents probe. Pence fully complied with the investigation and will also testify in special counsel Jack Smith's January 6th probe into the former president. Former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie and North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum are also expected to enter the race this week. Well, Microsoft flagged yet another active threat to U.S. critical infrastructure on Wednesday afternoon. The warning lights have uh, they've been blinking red for some time and uh, they've signaled a clear shift in the tactics of our adversaries. They intend to disrupt civil society for geopolitical and military gains. This is China's latest cyber attack and its active threat to critical U.S. infrastructure. Well, Volt Typhoon, a People's Republic of China-sponsored hacking group, has been stealthily targeting various critical infrastructure sectors by utilizing compromised network appliances, sensors, routers, and other devices with an Internet connection, i.e. the Internet of Things. Well, through Volt Typhoon, the PRC is attempting to access and develop capabilities that could be used to disrupt communications, commerce and transportation between Asia and the United States. Well, Microsoft's alert revealed that since mid 2021, Volt Typhoon has been targeting the communications, manufacturing, utility, transportation, construction, maritime, government, information technology and education sectors in Guam and elsewhere in the U.S., uh, this should come as no surprise, as we've observed over the past decade, how Russia conducted cyber espionage on a variety of critical interest infrastructure sectors in preparation for future cyber operations or as part of a larger military campaign like the invasion of Ukraine. Now, while China has gauged in similar cyber espionage behavior in the past, like targeting the U.S. oil and gas sector, 
The incidents were not viewed as indicative of potential attacks. Those incidents were viewed through a perverse lens of normative behavior conducted by nation states. Well, how to address the PRC's persistent cyber espionage operations represents a core question for national security policymakers. These operations are not only aggressive and potentially dangerous, but they also demonstrate the PRC's intentional trajectory toward conflict over Taiwan. Microsoft's threat intelligence team's statement points to Beijing's motives and its belief that there will be no repercussions from the current U.S. administration. Microsoft assesses with moderate confidence that this Volt Typhoon campaign is pursuing development of capabilities that could disrupt critical communications infrastructure between the U.S. and Asia and the region during future crises. Well, there are two key takeaways from the news from Microsoft. One, Chinese President Xi Jinping has consistently brushed aside diplomacy while actively preparing for potential conflict with the U.S. And two, detection of such attacks remains a key gap for critical infrastructure cybersecurity. Some pundits will attempt to downplay or dismiss the threat from China. They're highlighting the routineness of cyber espionage and pivoting to talk about emerging risks like uh, polymorphic malware or AI, artificial intelligence, as potentially more critical threats. Yet the underlying facts haven't changed. As technology integration in business, government, industry and everyday life increases, cyber vulnerabilities increase. China remains committed to Xi's vision for a world order that's new. Despite this administration's increase in the cyber bureaucracy, including the release of yet another national cyber strategy and establishing an office of national cyber director, what concrete steps have been taken to reduce the national risk? Well, more policies, more people are themselves not a solution. The Department of Homeland Security and other federal stakeholders have been given authorities to be proactive in their approach to cybersecurity. However, the model the government has embraced is a flat-footed and clumsy approach that keeps them in a constant state of response and recovery, awaiting alerts from the private sector and then managing damage control messaging afterwards. Well, instead of waiting for the private sector to decide to share information, Homeland Security must become forward-leaning and take meaningful steps toward addressing the risk and mitigating cyber threats to our critical infrastructure. It's very likely to be a major issue in the next presidential election. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up later in the second hour, acclaimed director Darren Wilson, his latest project, The God Man, his first on the big screen. It's set to debut on the big screen for a special one-night-only event on June the 6th through Fathom Events. All the important details what it's about, and how you can purchase your tickets. Again, one night only. That's tomorrow, June 6th. Well, a federal trial began today to determine the constitutionality of Oregon Measure 114. Voters approved the measure in uh, November to restrict firearm access. But the measure has been held up by a temporary restraining order from the Harney County judge. If the measure is found to be constitutional, it would require photo identification, fingerprints, firearms training, a background check, and a permit issued by police to buy a gun. There would also be a a fee to buy firearms. It would also ban magazines that hold more than 10 rounds of ammunition. Well, attorneys arguing for Measure 114 believe the measure is constitutional, saying the crux of our defense for large capacity magazines are that they are not arms at all protected by the Second Amendment because they're accessories. Zach 
uh, Pichelis, an attorney for Pacific Law Group, said. He said the United States has a long tradition of restricting dangerous weapons and accessories. Proponents of Measure 114 said the Second Amendment gives law-abiding citizens the right to use commonly used firearms for self-defense. But they claim 99% of lawful self-defense cases involve three gunshots or less. That's much fewer than the ban on magazines holding 10 rounds or ammunition or more. Bend City Councilor Anthony Broadman is also in favor of Measure 14. He said Bend is still grieving from an August shooting at a Safeway where two people were killed by a 20-year-old gunman. In a federal lawsuit against Measure 114, those in opposition have said the policy violates the Second Amendment. Lawyers representing the Oregon Firearms Federation said millions of law-abiding Americans own firearms with more than 10 rounds. Lawyers said there's nothing novel or unusual about the technology. The Oregon Association of Sheriffs also oppose 114, saying we recognize that we must address firearms violence, but Measure 114 is just not the answer. Shane Nelson, the president of the Oregon State Sheriff's Association, says, well, Pakellis, again, the attorney representing uh, Measure 114, expects the trial to last until Friday, but believes it will be weeks to months before the ruling is issued. There's also a temporary restraining order issued against Measure 114 by Harney County Circuit Judge. The preliminary injunction is expected to stay in place until a September trial. Meanwhile, fines are one tool that Senate President Rob Wagner and his Democratic caucus can use to try to compel fellow members to take part in Senate business. Since May 3rd, enough Republican senators plus independent Senator Brian Boquist have boycotted floor sessions to deny the 20 member quorum required for votes. Oregon Republican senators now face that $325 a day fine over the boycott. Well, Senate Republican leader Tim Knope of Bend, he issued a statement blasting Wagner for what he called retaliation against the Republican caucus. Well, Senate Democrats set the fine at three twenty five to match roughly how much lawmakers are compensated for a day's work, according to a press release from their caucus. Oregonians who do not show up to a work don't get paid. That's a quote from Senate Majority Leader Kate Lieber of Beaverton. Uh, In a statement, senators who do not show up need to start returning the hard-earned tax dollars they do not earn, end quote. Well, under a provision of the state constitution, senators present on the floor Thursday voted 16 to 2 to accede to Lieber's request for the fines. The two Republicans who didn't take part in the boycott that day, Dick Anderson and David Brock Smith, voted no. Nearly every action by the Senate requires a 20-member quorum, but an exception in the Constitution says that a smaller number may meet and compel the attendance of absent members. In 2019, after 11 Senate Republicans walked out of the Capitol to avoid a vote on a contentious climate change bill, then-Senate President Peter Courtney said he would levy $500 fines daily on each absent lawmaker. But Democrats ultimately pulled back on that plan, saying that imposing the fines would require lengthy litigation and hundreds of thousands of dollars in taxpayer-funded legal fees with Republican objections. Well, this year, Republicans are on track to kill hundreds of bills and derail top priorities for the governor, including plans to accelerate home-building boost uh, the Uh, home building, period, boost the reading skills of young children and fix the state's public defense crisis. Uh, Kotek said Wednesday that her negotiations over the last week with Republicans to end their walkout ended in deadlock after Republicans continued to insist that Democrats kill or substantially pare back a bill that would expand access to abortion and other reproductive care for children under the age of 15. Again, reproductive care is a misnomer. 
Well, the House Oversight Committee Chairman James Comer said that he will begin the process of holding FBI Director Christopher Wray in contempt of Congress. And that's despite viewing and being uh, briefed by bureau officials on the subpoenaed document alleging that Joe Biden was involved in a criminal bribery scheme on Capitol Hill. The uh, FBI brought the document in question, an FBI-generated FD-1023 form that allegedly describes a $5 million criminal scheme involving then-Vice President Joe Biden and a foreign national relating to the exchange of money for policy decisions to Capitol Hill on Monday for Comer and uh, ranking member Jamie Raskin a Republican and Democrat, respectively, to review in a secure SCIF Monday after a back and forth between committee Republicans and the Bureau over whether it was in compliance with his subpoena. Well, the FBI initially offered to allow Comer to review the document at FBI headquarters. But with Comer's threats to hold FBI Director Christopher Wray in contempt of Congress, the Bureau offered additional accommodations to bring the physical document to Capitol Hill. Well, despite the accommodation, Comer said today that the FBI is still not in compliance with the subpoena to turn over the physical document to the committee. Well, at the briefing, the FBI again refused to hand over the unclassified record to the custody of House Oversight Committee. And we will now initiate contempt of Congress hearings this Thursday. So the saga, the drama continues. He went on. Given the severity and complexity of the allegations contained within this record, Congress must investigate further. The investigation is not dead. This is only the beginning, Comer said. Well, he said the FBI officials confirmed Monday that the unclassified FBI-generated record has not been disproven and is currently being used in an ongoing investigation by a confidential human resource uh, who provided information about the vice president by being involved in a criminal bribery scheme is a trusted, highly credible informant who has been used by the FBI for over 10 years and has been paid over six figures. Well, Comer added, these are facts and no amount of spin and frankly lies from the White House or congressional Democrats can change this information. Well, it was first reported on Friday that the confidential human source who provided the uh, Biden information to the FBI was a pre-existing FBI source who has been used in multiple investigative matters separate from the Biden information. Now, the source said that the confidential human source was used by the FBI for at least several years before the generation of the June 2020 FD1, I should say 1023 form detailing the Biden allegations. Well, the sources also said that the confidential human uh, source has been consistently reviewed by the FBI and has been found to be highly credible. That's in quotes. Well, the source said the individual participated in investigative matters during the Obama administration. Well, Raskin on Monday downplayed the document and the briefing on it, as well as the allegations, saying the source may be credible, but information the source reported came from a conversation with someone else. In other words, secondhand. The work we're talking about is a secondhand hearsay. Now, Raskin, the Democrat who was allowed to see the actual document, went on to say, and so it's not the source, the confidential uh, confidential source, who is the origin of the particular claim that that confidential source is the person who reported it, that someone else was saying this. Well, the revelations of the document come after Comer and GOP Senator Chuck Grassley were approached by a whistleblower alleging that the FBI was in possession of a document, an FD-1023 form dated June 30, 2020, which explicitly detailed information provided by a confidential human source alleging uh, the former vice president, while serving, was involved in a $5 million criminal bribery scheme. 
The information on the form, according to the whistleblower, reveals a precise description of how the alleged criminal scheme was employed, as well as its purpose and details an arrangement involving an exchange of money for policy decisions. Now, I mentioned um, last week that while this does seem to be very compelling, uh, it does not necessarily prove that it's true. And in the interest of the American people, I hope and pray that it is not. Because another scandal from leadership that is investigated ad nauseum is not healthy for the republic. Uh, But if it is true, of course, it does need to be investigated. I just hope not for partisan sake, but for the sake of the nation, that we can move forward on issues that are of great significance uh, to this country. We'll just have to wait and see. How much time did I have? I missed that. Okay, about a minute. I want to remind you, coming up in the uh, the next hour, we'll talk with... uh, Claimed director Darren Wilson, his project The God Man is set to debut on the big screen for a special one night only event. And by the way, if you're interested in um, checking that out, you can go to the Georgine Rice Show Facebook page or the KPDQ page. We have a link to where you can uh, see a trailer, learn more about it and also purchase tickets. There are three locations in the Portland metro area. Each of the uh, Uh, performances are 7 o'clock p.m. at their respective uh, theaters. You can find out all that information either through our interview or going to one of our pages. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Later in the program, we're going to talk about what happened in Seoul, Korea. The 50th anniversary of Billy Graham's historic crusade, the largest he ever held, was, well, Reimagined. It was uh, well redone, if you will, with his son, Franklin Graham. We'll talk more about that. And we'll talk about 4,000 baptisms, the Baptize SoCal event. That's coming up later in today's program. Well, video footage showing a South Carolina based children's choir being stopped by a Capitol Police officer from singing the national anthem in the U.S. Capitol has gone viral with millions of views. Capitol Police said singers with the Rushbrook Children's Choir from Greensville were stopped because of a miscommunication. Capitol Police initially issued a statement that said that they were under the impression the group didn't have permission to perform in the building, but clarified later that they were not aware that the Speaker's office had approved the performance. Well, the visit was approved by the office of House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. Video of the event showed the children singing as a Capitol Police officer spoke with two other men. A few seconds later, the director motioned to the choir, cut them off to stop singing. Some Republicans accused the Capitol Police of taking action against the kids due to political bias. But the Capitol Police said that it's untrue and accused the congressional staffer of lying to the officers multiple times about having permission. McCarthy and three Republican members of Congress involved in inviting the group to the Capitol issued a joint statement saying they were very disappointed that the performance was cut short. We recently learned from school children from South Carolina were interrupted while singing our national anthem at the Capitol. These children were welcomed by the Speaker's office to joyfully express their love of this nation while visiting the Capitol. And we are all very disappointed to learn their celebration was cut short. He and three House Republicans said they had all been part of that invitation. We're delighted that the People's House has been reopened, particularly for our children. And we look forward to welcoming more Americans back to the halls of Congress. So depending on which version of events you want to accept, it would appear that the Capitol Police were under the misperception that the kids were singing without permission. uh, And they were not invited to resume the song once 
it was cleared up, but that's the unfortunate story. Well, Target, via its nonprofit foundation directed by the retail giant's senior corporate treasurers, funded a grantee pushing to shut down and give away U.S. sovereignty, uh, sovereign land, rather, such as Mount Rushmore, believing it to be an international symbol of white supremacy and to demilitarize the violent U.S. military. The same grantee also supports the destruction of Israel's Jewish character through what it called the Palestinian law of return and implementing economic warfare tactics against the Jewish state, such as boycotts and sanctions to free Palestine. Another Target Foundation grantee said parents must teach specifically white children about systematic racism and to see color, not the colorblind society I was raised on, but to see color. It also claimed that capitalism maintained a role in perpetuating racism. The Target Foundation's webpage reflected that it funded the NDN Collective in 2022, a South Dakota-based nonprofit with a revenue stream that has reached as high as 50 million plus, according to its 2021 tax filing. NDN operates with a racial equity lens and is dedicated to, and this is a quote from from them, uh, to building indigenous power through organizing activism, philanthropy, grant making and narrative change, end quote. Indian identifies as intersectional, which is an idea coined by a critical race theorist, Kimberly Crenshaw, holding that America is inborn with structural racism and misogynistic systems, and they can intersect upon an individual to form numerous layers of persecution by joining forces with other oppressed groups. Indian hopes to move forward toward liberation. Um, land back also uses a phrase which has long been interpreted by some as a genocide call for the elimination of the Jewish state, all underwritten by Target Foundation and the funds spent by consumers. Senator Tom Cotton slammed the Biden administration for its relationship with China, expressing concern over the possibility of lifting tariffs on China imports imposed by the Trump administration. In quotes, Biden administration officials should stop chasing after their Chinese communist counterparts like love-struck teenagers. It's embarrassing and it's pathetic, Cotton uh, said during an appearance on Fox News Sunday. In fact, it projects weakness to China. Well, his remarks came less than 24 hours after a Chinese warship came within nearly 150 yards of a U.S. destroyer in the Taiwan Straits last um, uh, late Saturday, rather, the U.S. Indo-Pacific Command confirmed the incident took place as the USS Chung-Hoon was conducting joint exercises with Canada. Senator Joe Manchin, the Democrat from West Virginia, said Monday he wouldn't rule out a potential third-party presidential run in 2024, touting the value of the moderate middle over the far left and right extremes after the debt ceiling package managed to clear both chambers of Congress and avoid a U.S. default. Shannon Bream grilled Manchin in a recent report in the New York Times claiming that the bipartisan group No Labels is eyeing a third-party presidential run in 2024, alarming Democrats, and that Manchin sits at the top of the list of potential candidates. The report said Manchin risks bleeding crucial um, uh, voters to his re-election support for President Biden. Is a third-party run still in the realm of possibility? Bream asked Manchin. No labels has been moving and pushing the centrist middle very hard, making common-sense decisions, Manchin said, sidestepping the question. People that basically expect us to do our job and not put the political party ahead of the policy in our great country, that's what we've seen happening, and there's more noise and more extremism coming from the far left and the far right. 
So it's not clear if he's entertaining seriously a third-party run, but we'll continue to follow the story. Well, the gray lady is being blasted. The New York Times article on President Biden's age is being ripped as slobbering and embarrassing after his latest fall. The New York Times is facing ridicule on Twitter after an article Sunday painted President Biden's old age in a positive light, describing the 80-year-old president as sharp, fit and having striking stamina. The Times article written by White House reporters titled Inside the Complicated Reality of Being America's Oldest President claimed that Biden's aides uh, have been purposely limiting his exposure to the media to avoid any potential gaffes. The two Joe Bidens, and I'm now quoting from The New York Times, coexist in the same octogenarian president. Sharp and wise at critical moments, the product of decades of seasoning, able to rise to the occasion, even in the dead of night, to confront the dangerous world, end quote, the article said. Yet a little slower, a little softer, a little harder of hearing, a little more tentative in his walk, a little more prone to um, occasional lapses of memory in ways that feel familiar to anyone who has uh, reached their ninth decade or has parents who have. Like many his age, Mr. Biden repeats phrases and retails the same story, often fact-challenged stories again and again, the article continued. He can be quirky when children visit. He may randomly pull a book of William Butler Yeats off his desk and start reading Irish poetry to them. At the same time, he is trim and fit, exercises five days a week and does not drink, it added. He has at times exhibited striking stamina, such as when he flew to Poland, then boarded a nine-hour train ride to make a secret visit to Kiev, spent hours on the ground, then endured another nine-hour train ride and a flight to Warsaw. A study of his schedule uh, by Mr. Biden's aides shows that he has traveled slightly more in the first few months of his third year in office than did Mr. Obama in his Steve Guest, a special advisor for communication to Senator Ted Cruz, called the article embarrassing. Biden tripped and fell during a U.S. Air Force Academy commencement ceremony on Thursday, which isn't uncommon for people to to fall. But at 80, there was concern about the toll it might take, prompting three Secret Service agents to rush to help the president up. Biden tripped over a sandbag, was not injured by the fall, but the fall reignited concerns about the president's age, prompting a. A number of media outlets to pounce and seize on Republicans voicing concerns about the president's physical health. The article went on to say that his staff pretty much schedules everything for him between noon and four, which means he's working a 20 hour week um, and that uh, they pretty much leave him alone on the weekends. This is the most powerful figure in the world working part time. NBC's Chuck Todd announced on Sunday that it would be his final summer as the host of Meet the Press and that Kirsten or rather Kristen Welker, NBC's chief White House correspondent, would be taking his spot. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a break. Uh, Also coming up in our second hour, director Darren Wilson on The God Man. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. In our second hour, Darren Wilson, his latest project, The God Man. So stay with us. Well, four years ago, Socialist Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and her uh, much older socialist ally in the Senate, Ed Markey, uh, made a made shockwaves by introducing a sweeping proposal for a Green New Deal. 
Well, the Green New Deal uh, is one of the most socialistic legislative proposals ever conceived in Congress. It would, among other things, create massive new spending programs, eliminate pollution and greenhouse gas emissions as much as technologically feasible, transforms all U.S. manufacturing and transportation, and upgrade all existing building in the United States. The Green New Deal would also make substantial changes to America's vast agricultural industry, create a jobs guarantee, and provide all people with government-managed health care, economic security, health, uh, healthy food, and access to nature. Unsurprisingly, the Green New Deal is likely the costliest legislation proposed to date. The American Action Forum estimates the final price tag could be as high as $94.4 trillion. Well, the socialist Green New Deal rather failed spectacularly when it was uh, brought before the Senate as a non-binding resolution in 2019. And despite having received support from numerous high-profile members of Congress, including Senator Bernie Sanders and then-Senator Kamala Harris, the measure failed to receive even a single vote in the Senate. However, the Green New Deal's past failures haven't deterred the most socialistic wing of the party. AOC and Markey announced in late April that they are reintroducing the Green New Deal in both the House and the Senate. Even more remarkably, Markey also announced that he and uh, Representative Ro Khanna of uh, California have introduced an add-on to the original Green New Deal called the Green New Deal for Health. Well, according to a press release by Markey's office, the Green New Deal for Health boldly reimagines a health care system that is prepared and empowered to protect the health and well-being of our workers, our communities, and our planet. The proposal includes numerous socialistic and progressive policies, including a $130 billion investment in community health centers, $100 billion in new government grants to improve medical facilities, climate resilience and disaster mitigation efforts, and countless new climate change regulations meant to establish a green medical supply chain. But perhaps the most important and far-reaching reform offered by the Green New Deal for health is one that has received virtually no media coverage at all. The Green New Deal for Health would establish a new office within the Department of Health and Human Services called the Office of Climate Change and Health Equity. The proposed Climate Chain and health Change rather, and Health Equity Office would oversee facilitating a robust federal response to the impact of climate change on the health of the American people and the health care system. The Climate Change and Health Equity Office would also be tasked with creating government reports showing the physical, mental, and behavioral health consequences of climate change, developing tools to track carbon dioxide emissions, and leading efforts to reduce the carbon footprint of the healthcare industry. Or put it simply, the Office of Climate Change and Health Equity will be responsible for injecting far-left, costly climate policies throughout the U.S. healthcare system, one of America's biggest employers. Well, this would drive up already skyrocketing health costs, put thousands of jobs at risk, and increase taxes, making it Harder for working class Americans to pay for the treatments they need. The Office of Climate Change and Health Equity would also coordinate federal efforts to deploy climate conscious human services and direct services to support and protect populations composed of individuals of disproportionately affected by climate change. Well, this might sound like a good idea. But the details of the legislation show this provision would ensure that federal health efforts would favor some demographic groups over others. 
In another section of Markey and Kana's uh, bill, individuals disproportionately affected by climate change are defined at, by a laundry list of absurd social justice criteria, including Americans under five years old or over 65 years old being a reproductive age, gender minority status, household income, pre-existing health concerns, immigration status, race and ethnicity, and the experience of racial bias. To qualify under the provision, an American must fall into two or more of those categories. Well, thankfully, neither the Green New Deal nor the Green New Deal for Health have any hope of being passed by the um, Republican-controlled House any time this year or next. But the uh, persistence to create these radical plans ought to serve as an important reminder of what could be heading our way soon if Americans don't continue to push back against the rise of socialism in the United States, especially in the halls of Congress. Well, in other news, the RNC has set rules to qualify for the August debate. And unlike the DNC, at this point, there will be debate. The Republican National Committee says it will consider adding a second night to the first GOP presidential primary debate this August in Milwaukee, according to new qualifying standards announced on Friday. The first debate will be August 23rd on the Fox News Channel with a possible second date on the 24th. That's the following day, if enough candidates meet the criteria and also commit to supporting the eventual Republican nominee and pledge that they will not participate in any outside debates. Well, Democrats allowed uh, candidates to qualify either by meeting a 65,000 donor threshold or by getting one percent in at least three early state or national polls. Republicans, by contrast, will require both a donor and a polling standard. The polling standard requires a candidate to be at one percent nationally in multiple polls that are deemed credible by the RNC. Representative Garrett uh, Graves of um, on Kevin McCarthy. He says Speaker McCarthy's position is absolutely safe. Well, Graves helped negotiate the recently passed debt ceiling bill with the White House. On Sunday, he dismissed concerns that his GOP colleagues might try to ouster the speaker, saying the California Republican's job is absolutely safe. On Face the Nation, Republican Representative Ken Buck says Speaker McCarthy should be worried about his job and doesn't have the faith of the Republican caucus. GOP Representative Garrett Graves says it's not a mainstream position. Speaker McCarthy's position is absolutely safe, so we'll just have to see how this plays out. McCarthy agreed to lower the threshold for a motion to vacate to one vote back in January when he faced an historically atypical 15 vote to win the gavel. So he's made himself a bit more vulnerable than he otherwise would have been. American Federation of Teachers President Randy Weingarten voiced concern to Centers for Disease Control and Prevention Director Rochelle Walensky about the language of the federal agency's February 2021 school opening guidance a day before it was made public, according to newly reported texts that shed light on other friendly relationship. The uh, text messages, uh, they show the uh, chummy exchange between Weingarten and Walensky uh, were obtained by the Fairfax County Parents Association through a Freedom of Information Act request by the CDC or with the CDC. The text uh, chains seem to show Walensky caved to pressure applied by Weingarten to Keep schools shuttered in February of 21 and then thanking Weingarten, who she refers to as her friend after the union released a statement praising the health agency. Well, the messages also show the president of the other major teachers union, the National Education Association's Becky Pringle, texting directly with the head of the agency and appearing to invoke diversity as an argument to keep schools closed. 
The number of homeless people in California grew by 50 percent between 2014 and 2022. The state, which accounts for 12 percent of the U.S. population, has about half of the nation's unsheltered homeless, an estimated 115,000, according to federal and state data last year. It also has among the highest average rent and median home prices in the U.S., uh, California spent a record $17 billion combating homelessness in the past four fiscal years. For the state budget year starting in July, Governor Gavin Newsom has proposed another $3.7 billion. Voters in Los Angeles and San Francisco, which have some of the largest homeless populations in the state, were unhappy enough about it to approve taxes, costing them billions of dollars to fund anti-homeless programs and housing in recent years. So far, cost overruns and delays have left little to show for the money. We've got news and traffic coming here at the top of the hour and a conversation with Darren Wilson, uh, the uh, director of The God Man, set to debut tomorrow night. More details on that in the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. James Blinn producing Dave King Engineering. Well, this hour, we'll have a conversation with Daryl Wilson. He'll join us in our next couple of segments. He is an acclaimed director, and his latest project, The God Man, set to debut on the big screen for a special one-night-only event. That's tomorrow night, June 6th, through Fathom Events. We'll give you all the important details, how you can find the uh, trailer, as well as buy tickets. We'll also talk about the uh, Seoul Stadium 50th anniversary of Billy Graham's historic crusade, his largest being recreated with his son, uh, over the last uh, few days and over 4,000 baptized at Baptize SoCal, another event, just giving us a glimpse into what's happening in the world that doesn't necessarily make the headlines. All of that's coming up uh, later this hour. Also, Jeff Johnston will be my guest tomorrow. He's an issues analyst with focus on the family. We're going to talk about tools for parents to help them, their children navigate through Pride Month. So that's coming up on tomorrow's program. Well, U.S. Representative Mike Turner, the chair of the House Intelligence Committee on Sunday, lambasted what he called increased military hostility by China and insisted the U.S. stand strong after recent close calls near American ships and planes and the suspected spy balloon that was shot down off the East Coast. Well, the tough rhetoric from Turner comes as relations between Washington and Beijing have become frayed over issues including Taiwan, trade and Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Though President Joe Biden has said he seeks competition, not conflict. Well, U.S. officials believe China has been coordinating an increasing campaign of harassment, including two incidents in recent days between U.S. and Chinese planes and ships. Representative Turner said today, I told Martha Raddatz on that America uh, on that America needs to stand strong against China and Russia's efforts to advance authoritarianism. Meanwhile, former FBI Director James Comey predicted that former President Donald Trump could win the Republican nomination for president, even if he is criminally convicted. Trump was indicted earlier this year over his alleged involvement in making hush money payments to, a well, Stormy Daniels. During his 2016 presidential campaign, he's the first president to be criminally charged. And Comey said in an MSNBC interview on Sunday that he anticipates Trump to be uh, the first incarcerated president as well if elected. Jen Psaki weighs in, saying he could be wearing an ankle bracelet while accepting the nomination at the Republican convention. Saudi Arabia will make an additional voluntary cut of one million barrels of oil per day as part of a deal struck by OPEC 
after OPEC plus, I should say, after hours of tense haggling, Saudi Energy Minister Prince Abdulaziz bin Salman unveiled the uh, reduction in a statement, once again managing to pull off a surprise. The Saudi move is the most meaningful part of the deal, which also includes an agreement to extend voluntary cuts through 2024. The main winner from the deal is the United Arab Emirates, which gets a boost to its quota for next year. The Wall Street Journal weighs in, pointing out that the decision to roll over its production target comes after OPEC Plus in October slashed output by 2 million barrels a day. In April, some of the group's largest members, including Saudi Arabia and Russia, cut a further 1.6 million barrels a day. The OPEC Plus decision in October drew rebuke from the U.S., which at the time had requested that Saudi Arabia and its allies increase production to help lower energy prices and tame high inflation. The White House called the OPEC Plus decision short-sighted and suggested the group was actively supporting Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Um, Brent Crude The international oil benchmark is down more than 20 percent since OPEC plus first jolted the market with output cuts last year. And we are dependent on what they produce. Incoming Twitter chief executive Linda Yarkarino or something very like that has tapped one of her top lieutenants from NBC Universal to join her as she prepares to take the helm at the social media company. Joe um, Benarok is uh, taking on a senior business operations role, according to a memo. He sent to NBC Universal colleagues. He has served as executive vice president of communications, global advertising and partnerships at NBC Universal, where um, his colleague for years has run the media company's ad sales operation. He's been one of the most trusted advisors. Um, Musk has said um, Yacarino will focus primarily on business operations while he will he will focus on product design and technology. President Biden waited until Saturday to raise the debt ceiling. This is an emergency. The president spent most of the spring uh, warning us on the debt ceiling when it came time to sign the bill that bipartisan majorities in Congress passed last week. However, Biden went off to bed and signed it the next day. No one got everything they wanted, but the American people got what they needed, the president said of the deal. It's almost humorous to see the guy who for months refused to even negotiate on this bill suddenly praise Senator Speaker Kevin McCarthy as being completely honest and operating in good faith. People who undergo supposedly gender-affirming health care, including surgery, are lonelier and do not have an increased level of satisfaction in life. So say two recent studies published in medical and scientific journals. Mary Beth Waddell, Director of Federal Affairs for Family and Religious Liberty at the Family Research Council, said this comes as no surprise. She pointed to another study showing that the suicide completion rate for those who had undergone surgery was 19 percent higher than the general population. U.S. District Judge Thomas Parker, appointed by Donald Trump, overturned Tennessee's strict new law regulating drag shows. In a ruling late Friday, Parker called it unconstitutionally vague and substantially overboard, and he argued that it would lead to discriminatory enforcement. Tennessee's legislatures um, and legislators rather intended for the law to protect children from exposure to explicit and obscene material that people falsely build as family friendly. Parker was uh, un. A persuaded writing, whether some of us may like it or not, the Supreme Court has interpreted the First Amendment as protecting speech that is indecent but not obscene. Now, I'm not sure it protected that speech uh, of children being exposed to it, but that's another matter. That's the decision the judge made. The Biden administration says suspending minority students for skipping school is racist. So if you don't graduate, if you can't read, write or function in the modern world, 
The Biden administration doesn't seem to care. Oil prices rose after Saudi Arabia pledges more voluntary production cuts. San Francisco homeowners lost $260 billion in value. Texas Governor Abbott says he wants to eliminate property taxes. And the State Department is pushing LGBTQ pride everywhere except in the Muslim world. A Planned Parenthood abortion ad features a transgender person, in other words, a female who um, is a transgender male who's pregnant. And we're supposed to somehow marvel at that, that a woman is pregnant anyway. Harvard hired uh, failed ex-Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot to teach public health and leadership. And as fentanyl deaths spike, Los Angeles hands out crack pipes. Most U.S. adults are declining COVID boosters and the World Health Organization granted North Korea a spot on the executive board. Well, that makes sense based on what I know of WHO. Well, on this day in history, 2004, Ronald Wilson Reagan, the 40th president of the United States, dies in Los Angeles at age 93 after a long battle with Alzheimer's disease. 1794, Congress passes the Neutrality Act, which prohibits Americans from taking part in any military action against a country that is at peace with the United States. 1917, about 10 million American men between the ages of 21 and 31 begin registering for the draft in World War I. 1933, the United States goes off the gold standard. 1967, the Six-Day War erupts in the Middle East as Israel, anticipating a possible attack by its Arab neighbors, launches a series of preemptive airfield strikes that destroyed nearly the entire European, or rather Egyptian, air force. Syria, Jordan, and Iraq immediately entered the conflict. 1968, Senator Robert F. Kennedy is shot and mortally wounded after claiming victory in California's Democratic presidential primary at the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles. Assassin Sirhan Bishara Sirhan is arrested at the scene. 1981, the Centers for Disease Control reports that five homosexuals in Los Angeles had come down with a rare kind of pneumonia. They are the first recognized cases of what later came to be known as AIDS. 2017, the Justice Department charges 25-year-old reality Lee Winner, a federal contractor working at a government facility in Georgia, with removing classified material from a government facility and leaking it to the media. Also in 2017, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Bahrain, and Egypt cut ties with Gutter for funding extremism and terrorism. Well, coming up, my conversation with Darren Wilson his latest project, The God Man, will tell you all about it and more when we return. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, filmmaker Darren Wilson's latest project, The God Man, is set to debut on the big screen for a special one night only event that's coming up tomorrow night, June 6th. Through Fathom Events, it's known uh, the uh, director is known for his powerful documentaries, rather, that explore the intersection of faith and spirituality. And his new film promises to be the most ambitious project yet. Well, Darren Wilson is an award-winning filmmaker known for his uh, documentaries exploring faith and spirituality. His previous films include Finger of God, Father of Lights, and Holy Ghost. Devin Franklin, former vice president at production from Columbia Pictures, calls him one of the most innovative filmmakers and authors of faith today. Well, he joins us now to talk about this uh, new film that's coming out tomorrow, one night only, The God Man. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. First of all, congratulations on the project. It's got to be exciting to see what begins as a thought uh, actually displayed on a big screen. 
Yeah, especially a thought that's uh, 10 years in the making. So it's, it's been a <laughs> long, long time coming, but it's, but it's good. It's very good, yes. Well, let's talk a little bit about your background and uh, your filmmaking careers. People may know you from some of your previous work, but let's assume they don't. And let's kind of start from the beginning. How did you become one of the most innovative filmmakers and authors of faith today? <laughs> Completely by accident. <laughs> um, so actually, before I started making movies, I was actually a college professor uh, and I was teaching English um, uh, in Chicago. I became a college professor at 23 and uh, you know, I was teaching kids how to write term papers. And uh, basically, in 2000, about five or six, uh, I had a really radical encounter with God, uh, where basically he told me to make to make this this film about miracles called Finger of God. And so I borrowed twenty thousand dollars, mostly from my family, went out and made it. Didn't know what I was doing. Had to learn how to use a camera while I was going, and and put it together, and threw it up on Amazon, and walked away, and went back to teaching. And then you know through nothing that I did, it just became a, a massive underground hit. So that kind of started everything off. That, it's very ambitious to imagine uh, filmmaking, whether it's on the big screen or a smaller screen, uh, and yet you persevered. Would you uh, characterize this as a calling in your life at this point? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's one of those things, I think sometimes when people find their calling, it's you, you don't think that, that it is. Yeah, I always thought I was just going to be a writer. Uh, but God has much, what I've discovered is God has much bigger dreams for us than we typically do for ourselves. So being able to step into this, uh, it felt just kind of like a, a fish in water. So it was, it was, God knew better than I did, as he usually does. Well, your latest film, The God Man, has you traveling once again around the world in an effort to capture God's moving uh, in the in film. Uh, talk a little bit about the inspiration of this particular film, as opposed to your past films, Finger of God, Father of Lights, and Holy Ghost. Yeah, so all of my past movies it, have been very much kind of an exploration, is, is how I put it. Um, typically, it's something that I, I realize I don't understand very well or I'm scared of, So, for instance, or I'm skeptical of. So with my first film, it was about miracles. I went into it as a, as a very hardcore skeptic, wanted to see if God's still in the business of doing miracles. Um, and then like the father of life, it's like, I knew that I didn't understand the father very well. I was scared to death of God. Um, and I knew that was probably theologically wrong. Uh, and then with Holy Ghost and Holy Ghost Reborn, it was all about the Holy Spirit. And I, again, I just, I was kind of terrified of them because I couldn't control them or understand them. So I went into those kind of as, as I guess you could call it as an explorer, trying right? to, I, I wanted to kind of learn the truth of, of these things. And, but when I got to this one, you know, this one's all about Jesus and, you know, I'd spent the last 15 years getting to know Jesus and, and discovering him and his character and who he truly is. Um, and I, so this was this was less about exploration and more about um, just revelation. Just I really wanted I want to reveal um, this person who has over the past 15 years become my absolute best friend. And I just wanted to reveal him to the world. And so it, that, so that's kind of where this the launching pad for this one is, is a lot different than the than the other ones. You make the point that. Um, you wanted to make a, a Jesus film for a new generation that he has always been the answer, but communicating that message to this generation, uh, as is the case with every generation, I suppose, uh, requires a fresh retelling. How does this telling of and your exploration of who Jesus is, how does this appeal specifically to uh, the generation to whom you are addressing uh, the Son of God? Yeah, well, I mean, for, for people who don't know my films, they're, they're very different. I mean, they're documentaries, but they're unlike any documentaries mm -hmm. you've pretty much ever seen. Um, I, I kind of 
instead of going somewhere and, and having somebody tell us about something, we go places uh, wherever God sends me, and uh, we film God doing God things in real time. And you know, especially for for this new generation, they want what's real. They don't want they don't want church. They don't want religion. They want something that's true, and they want they they want to see it with their own eyes. And so that's what we try to do. I try to basically just follow God's leading. Um, sometimes it's through dreams. Sometimes it's impressions. Um, and when I'm praying, but uh, typically he shows me where to go, and I I show up, and we have no idea why we're why we're there, until and it's just up to God to to do His thing and show us. And so, for a lot of people who watch these, um, it's very it's it's an exciting <laughs> it's an exciting journey. It's terrifying for me to make it, but it's exciting <laughs> for people to watch it. Well, it's it's certainly an unconventional way to tell a story. You arrive at a location, you believe you're led there, you're not entirely sure what the uh, what the focus will be, and you, of course, have a crew along with you uh, on this journey. How challenging was that to have others travel with you who um, you may not be able to explain specifically what's what's going to happen, but they know generally uh, what the purpose is and the drive behind this uh, this film? Yeah, so at this point, I mean, you know, everybody that I film with, they all know kind of, they know my films. Uh, a lot, I'm filming with a lot of my friends who I've filmed with in past movies, and so they kind of get the drill at this point. Mm-hmm. But uh, I'll give I'll give you like a, a really quick example of, in this movie. You know, in, it was uh, I believe it was May. This is actually all in the film. Um, but in May of 2021, I had a dream, and so all, it's the first time this has ever happened to me. Where in the dream, uh, God told me very specifically where in the world to go, um, and uh, so it was so it, this place called Rotan, uh, Honduras, which I'd never even heard of. Um, until he tells me in my dream. And so that's what we did. We just basically, we, you know, I took a crew, we went to roll time, we had five days and I have, I literally landed and I have no idea what we're supposed to do or why we're there. And so it becomes un, kind of like an unraveling of a mystery of why did God send us here? And uh, again, you know, it's just one of the stories that you'll see in the movie. It's pretty wild. Yeah, we're talking this afternoon with uh, filmmaker Darren Wilson, his latest project, The God Man, and it's premiering in theaters one night only. That's tomorrow, June the 6th. Here in the Portland metro area, you can purchase tickets and watch the film at Century Clackamas Town Center. All the uh, performances at 7 o'clock. Regal Wilsonville at uh, Southwest Town Center Loop or at Regal Bridgeport Village and IMAX in Tigard on Southwest Bridgeport Road. You can uh, purchase your tickets at fathomevents.com slash events slash the hyphen God, hyphen man. I'll put that on the uh, website so that if you happen to be in your car, you don't drive off the road trying to get those details. But we'll make sure that you can make that connection and see the film. How important is it for you to have a, a strong audience for this one night only performance? How does that translate into future opportunities and viewings? Well, for me, it's less about, you know, I have an established track record. So that's, it's less frightening, let's put it that way. But for me, it's more about just the community of Christian filmmakers. We really, I mean, I, we've been seeing so many movies coming out that are faith-based that are actually becoming really successful and they're actually really good, mm-hmm. uh, like the Jesus Revolution and, you know, these movies like that. So I just want to see, people, you know, Hollywood is watching. So, for instance, I've met with the heads of Sony, heads of Columbia Pictures, um, in the past, and they've all, they've, they're all like closet fans of mine. They love my movies, but they said, you know, we can't sell this. It's too Christian. And so what I want to show, what we want to show Hollywood is like, no, there's no such thing as too Christian. You know, there's no, no, much, no such thing as, as too, too godly. So, um, you know, I just, I, you know, I tried to make a, 
a movie that's going to really, really, um, you know, that's going to be very powerful for people, but it's also going to be very entertaining. And so we just want to show Hollywood because uh, they're paying attention. Trust me, they're they're very much paying attention. Yeah, absolutely. That people want these kinds of movies. And aside from that, it's a movie worth seeing. We're not just making a point. You've made a good movie that's worth seeing, and uh, our, our attendance helps to communicate that message and perhaps open the door for future projects as well. Again, we're talking this Absolutely. afternoon with acclaimed director Darren Wilson. His latest project, The God Man, will continue our conversation in just a moment. So do stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing a conversation I began in our previous segment with acclaimed director Darren Wilson, his latest project, The God Man. It's set to debut on the big screen for a special one-night-only event. That's tomorrow night, June 6th, through Fathom Events. And you can go to the website for all the important details. You can go to kpdq.com. You can go to The Georgine Rice Show Facebook page, and that information will be there as well. But fathomevents.com slash events slash the God man with a hyphen between the God and man. Again, that's a lot of information, but you can find it on the web um, as well. It was important to you and has been important to you to um, to talk about the God man. And you're, of course, referring to Jesus Christ. How did your relationship with him begin and why has it become so important to you to use the gifts that God has given you? Uh, to tell that story well to a generation that may be less familiar than that of mine or previous generations? Yeah, so, you know, I grew up in the church, and um, there's a good there's good and bad of growing up in the church. Um, the, the good is it keeps you out of trouble a lot. Um, the bad is a lot of times Jesus and God loves you and all the, all the stuff that goes with it. Um, it kind of it kind of becomes background noise. I call it like kind of like wall, like spiritual wallpaper, um, where it doesn't really mean a whole lot anymore. And that's kind of where I was when I started making these movies, where I loved God, I believed in Him, um, but I was also terrified of Him. I thought that He pretty much was just out to get me, and and uh, He just wanted to punish me. And Jesus was the only one stopping Him. Um, and so I just had a warped view. And so for with all of these films, it's just been, again, a journey of, of discovering that God is actually who he says he is. And who he says he is, is, is love. You know, in the Bible, there's only two God is, where, where God says, you know, it says God is this or God is this. And the two are God is light and God is love. And, uh, and so anything that goes against those, it's bad, it's bad theology. <laughs> so I just want to show people um, in, in a way that's, that's again, entertaining, um, just how wonderful and amazing and loving and fun this God is. And so I just try to, to you know, I'm a storyteller at heart, so I just try to tell a good story that, that shows people the truth. You make the point that um, he is the answer to everything. And in the 21st century, where there's a desperate search for answers to virtually everything, this is an important and timely film to suggest to young people and all of your audience that they need to consider Jesus Christ, who didn't just become uh, the answer, but has always been the answer. Tell us a little bit how you present the subject in your film. Well, you know, we talk to different theologians and, and pastors, but again, the, the, the star of the show is always when we go out, we just let God do his thing. We let Jesus be Jesus. Um, and one thing that actually really surprised me more than anything was um, the fact that my, my daughter kind of became the star of the show. Um, she had actually gone very prodigal 
uh, very prodigal uh, before for the few years before I started making this film. And just kind of in desperation, I hired her to be a part of, of the crew. I just was hoping that the people that we meet and, and just seeing God move um, would just kind of rub off on her a little tiny bit. Um, but yes, yeah, so she basically wanted every single shoot. Uh, she wanted nothing to do with Jesus beforehand. She was doing this for a paycheck. And uh, by the time we finished filming, she had been gotten radically, radically saved um, just by the power of, of the things that she saw, the people that she met. And she just realized, you know, the difference between who Jesus really is and, you know, the, the sometimes um, screwed up world of the church uh, that had really, really hurt her um, for much, much of her life. And so for me, that's been the, the, the probably the biggest surprise and, and the best. She's the best part of the movie, hands down. Oh, absolutely. That's every father's dream, you know, for uh, to come alongside a, a, a child and see that individual come to faith in Christ on their own through a project that you're working together on. I mean, you, you can't beat that. Yeah, it was, it was it was absolutely amazing. And everybody who's seen the movie all says she is by far. She still has to show her because <laughs> her story is so relatable. It's not it's not look at the great man or woman of God doing an amazing thing or God's doing something in them because they're a great man of God. You know, it's, this is a, this is a kid who's trying to work through life just like your kid is, or just like you are. And it's, it's just, it becomes very real and very personal. And uh, it, it's for, it, it really takes the power level of the, of the film to another level for sure. For those of us who have yet to see the film, can you pick out one of the locations and one of the encounters that you had uh, that really stood out that um, aside from obviously your your daughter's um, growth through this process that really uh, communicates this is who Jesus is. He is the answer as you are on one of these divine appointments. Yeah, I'll give you, I'll give you a little one. I don't want to spoil all the big ones. Yeah. But here's a, here's a little one that gives you an, gives you an example. So we were filming in Alaska and uh, I filmed with I was filming with a guy named Jake Hamilton. He's a musician. Um, and uh, I'd filmed with him for Holy Ghost about seven years prior uh, in Varanasi, India. And while we were there, it was the second day we were there. This is seven years ago. Uh, he has a dream that he was. We were in a cold place. He's on another shoot with me, and he's like sitting on a on a bench on a little ledge, like that's overlooking kind of where water should be. And there's mountains, and, and it's a really cold place. And uh, so he, and then he, he was. He, we were filming him in the dream sitting down and writing a song from start to finish. And then he woke up. So I remember he told me that that morning. I just kind of put it in my little memory bank. And so anyway, so when we're in Alaska, Jake is with me. Uh, it's the last day of shooting. And, um, you know, we still want, we knew that, because I remember this, I wanted to have Jake still write the song because I remember the dream. And so uh, our, our host kind of took us to this ultra secretive spot that hardly anybody knew about. Uh, we're like in the wilds of Alaska at this point. And we walk out, and he's. This is all on camera. Um, and he he looks at me, and he's like, "Darren, this is it. This is the spot." I'm like, "What are you, what are you talking about?" He's like, "This is the spot from my dream. This is exactly where what I dreamed." And it was like it was just it blew all of our minds because it's like, and we even we even I even filmed him ahead of time describing what it was like before we even got to the town, and it's exactly as he described it. And it was just one of those things where it's like, man, God knew seven years prior that we we're going to be right here, right now. You know, at this moment to do this thing for this film, and uh, you know, God doesn't miss a detail, and He just He knows the end from the beginning, and it was, it blew my mind, it blew everybody's mind. So that's a, that's a really small little part of the movie, um, but a, a really good example of the kinds of things that uh, that God did throughout this whole production. Mm. We're talking about the movie that's uh, set for debut 
uh, tomorrow evening, a special one-night event, June 6th, through Fathom Events at Century Clackamas Town Center at Regal Wilsonville and Regal Bridgeport Village and IMAX. That's tomorrow night at 7 p.m. You have one shot to see the uh, to see the film, to be inspired, encouraged, challenged, and all the good things that uh, that movies can do when they are well done. And uh, director Darren Wilson is known for doing things very well. I want to encourage you, if you'd like to um, purchase a ticket, and I would urge, urge you to do just that, you can uh, find uh, ticket purchasing at fathomevents.com. Uh, you can just stop there or go slash events, the Godman, and you can uh, purchase your tickets there at one of the three locations in the Portland area. But keep in mind, this is a one night only opportunity. Now, what do you hope um, viewers will take away from uh, sitting down and watching the Godman? What, what's the primary message that you want them to walk away with? You know, it's a, this, this, for this movie, there's a fine line I had to walk when I was making it. I'm trying to make a film that would reignite. Um, a passion for Jesus and the people who already knew him, but also um, introduce him, uh, the, the true him, not the political him, not the churchy mm. him, not the religious him, to people who have no idea who he is. And uh, so far, you know, advanced audience tells, you know, I think we've, we've done it. Um, but I just want people to, to, ex- to experience Jesus as he truly is. And uh, for those of you who believe in him, to take your, your faith deeper. For those of you who don't, to realize he's the most amazing person you'll ever meet. And, uh, you know, he wants to, he wants to bring you salvation and peace and joy and, uh, remove all of your fear. And so, uh, that, I guess that's what I just want to meet Jesus because he changes everything. Absolutely. Well, what's that, What's next for you? This has been quite a journey. Your first, um, big screen film. What's next for you? Uh, I, I don't know what's next for the next project, but for the you know this is the first tip of the spear. So we'll be rolling out the the release of this film in kind of broader areas and stuff uh, over the next few months. So that's kind of right now. That's what I'm that's what I'm focused on. But uh, I'll be doing some other things in the future that I know about, like some different television uh, specials and things like that. But that's all still in the very early stages. Well, amazing. So we'll- well, I want to encourage our listeners to keep your name in mind, Darren Wilson. When your name is attached to a project, it's worth checking out. For now, <laughs> The God Man, set to debut on the big screen for a special one-night-only event tomorrow night, June the 6th, through Fathom Events at three locations in the metro area, Century Clackamas Town Center, Regal Wilsonville, and Regal Bridgeport Village, and IMAX, 7 o'clock p.m. for all three of those locations, and you can purchase your tickets online. Uh, you can uh, get all that information on uh, the Georgine Rice Show f- uh, Facebook page as well as the KPDQ page. Well, congratulations once again. Thank you for taking the time to talk with us. And I, I uh, hope and pray all the best for you as you move forward in your effort to communicate who Jesus is. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure being on your show. Thank you so much. God bless. All right. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be back. To wrap things up, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Now, if you're familiar with the scriptures, you know that what we see with our eyes is never the whole story of what God is doing in the earth. And that certainly is true today in the 21st century as we believers follow what's going on in the world and wonder what is God doing? Well, I've got a couple of examples I wanted to share with you in the last segment of today's program. The first has to do with the Seoul Stadium. We're talking about Seoul, Korea. It overflowed with uh, for the 50th anniversary of Billy Graham's historic Korean crusade. 70,000 people overflowed the uh, World Cup Stadium on Saturday as Franklin Graham 
president and CEO of the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association, gave a passionate sermon, uh, sermon rather, on the 50th anniversary of his father's historic outreach in Seoul, Korea. Well, his address occurred on a significant day, mirroring an event that drew 1.1 million people to the plaza on June 3rd, 1973. Known as Billy Graham's largest crusade, attendees predominantly made the journey on foot, showing an extraordinary devotion and an eagerness to engage with the uh, the message. Well, the Korean churches and Dr. Billy Graham, the pastor who translated for Billy Graham during the original uh, 1973 outreach, extended the invitation to his son, Franklin Graham. While the event sought to offer solace and inspiration, echoing the profound effect of the original event. Well, Korea has changed so much in 50 years. The world has changed, but God's love for you has not changed. Franklin Graham told the crowd, God made you, he created you, and he loves you. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to save you from your sins. And if you're willing to accept that by faith, believe in his name and turn from your sins, your soul will be safe and secure in his hands for eternity, end quote. Well, the event was attended well beyond the stadium's capacity, according to um, the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. Thousands made life-changing decisions for Christ. Um, he told the Christian Post in a statement of the event, well, Graham expressed his deep honor and humility at being part of this monumental occasion, and he highlighted his father's latest impact on Korean churches and the role of the 1973 crusade played in his personal spiritual development. He said, the last time my father saw Dr. Billy Kim, he told him, let's have one more crusade in Korea. Graham told the crowd and uh, shared that uh, his father would have been excited and thankful about the event. I love the people of Korea. This is a strong and beautiful country, and the people are so sincere and generous, he said. They have always made me feel right at home, and I'm looking forward to being with the people of this nation. I'm coming to Seoul at a time that has been difficult for many people. The pandemic was very challenging. People need to know there is hope. So many are anxious about the future and don't know where to turn. I want them to know that God has a plan and a purpose for their lives. There's no nation in the world, he went on to say, quite like Korea. But all the money and all the technology doesn't fill the vacuum in the human heart. People want to know, who am I? Who am I and why am I here, rather? What's the purpose and the meaning of my life? People are searching and they don't even know what they're searching for. But something is missing. Only God can fill that vacuum. I've come to preach a simple message of God's love for the Korean people. And I want everyone to know how they can have a personal relationship with God through his through faith in his son, Jesus Christ. End quote. Well, on Friday, Franklin Graham's son, Will Graham, an evangelist and the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association's executive vice president, addressed a youth rally at Sarang Church, a 60,000 member Presbyterian church in Seoul, which drew about 6,500 people. Will Graham preached at the uh, uh, Yoida Full Gospel Church in Seoul on Sunday, according to the uh, association. The church holds a distinction of being the world's largest setting a fitting stage for the continuation of the Graham family spiritual mission in the country of South Korea. Well, that's a bit far off, but again, it reminds us that God is at work in places and in ways that we can't even comprehend. We're unaware of, but if we know the scriptures, we know he is at work and that he is always moving. Another example, over 4,000 people were baptized at California beach during the historic baptized Southern Cal event, more than 4,000 um, off the beaches of SoCal at um, 
on Pentecost Sunday as part of a revival event organized by several congregations. Well, on the 28th, around 300 churches came to Pirate's Cove Beach under the banner of the event, Baptized SoCal, with a recorded number of 4,166 people being baptized. Pastor um, Mark uh, Fornsay, one of the lead pastors of the California-based Oceans Church and one of the people behind the event, told the Christian Post that God gave him the vision to do the event during a prayer time back in May of 2022. He said, as believers, we always want to be obedient to what God asks us to do. My mentors taught me it is as simple as praying, obeying, then acting. While his church has previously hosted baptism events at local beaches, including Pirates Cove Beach before, he said, we have never seen a crowd like that for baptisms. R.J. McCauley, pastor of student ministries at Magnolia Church of Riverside and an attendee of the mass baptism, told the Christian Post that it was a beautiful event. In our time of cultural darkness, there was a bright light shining throughout the event on Pentecost Sunday. There was live worship, prayer, and thousands of people cheering on those who were getting baptized. We want a Jesus revolution to truly happen in our state and among the youth. So this is a beautiful event that helps accomplish that goal. Well, Macaulay went on to say, and by the way, he heads the California Southern Baptist Convention Organization, CSBC Youth. He told a Christian Post that there are plans to return to Pirates Cove for Pentecost again in 2024. We want to plant a gospel seed in every Gen Z in California. So I hope to be involved next year and help mobilize Gen Z students to attend this historic baptism spot and pass it on to the future in California. Well, California's beaches are no stranger to mass baptisms in the past and the recent past, essentially Pirates Cove. Greg Laurie, an evangelist and senior pastor of Harvest Christian Fellowship in Riverside, he's held baptism events at Pirates Cove over the years. In 2018, over 550 people were baptized during a, an event at Pirates Cove led by Laurie. Back over 40 years ago, during the Jesus Movement, we used to do baptisms down at Pirate Cove. In fact, that... Um, That is where I baptized my wife, Kathy, he says. She was baptized there as well. Again, he says it is a significant place historically for the church because that was sort of the epicenter of the Jesus Revolution. As reported by the Time magazine and others, it was a phenomenon, end quote. Well, in September of 2020, nearly a thousand people were baptized in Newport Beach's Corona Del Mar State Beach at an event sponsored by Calvary Chapel of Chino Hills. In any event, people making public profession of their faith, again, God is at work in places you wouldn't expect it, in ways that we will always underestimate. So don't be discouraged by what's happening in your life and your area, because God is at work. Well, we are out of time, but I do want to let you know on Tuesday, I'm looking forward to a conversation with Jeff Johnston. He's the issues analyst for Focus on the Family. We'll be talking about navigating Pride Month with your kids and how to help them understand those events. So that's coming up on Tuesday. I want to thank James Blend for producing, Dave King for engineering, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.